0: Hello, thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Having a choice in life is a good thing. We feel actually safer if we have a sense of control, uh, most of us feel safer if we can, are the ones driving the car rather than sitting in the passenger seat. Many people feel much safer, of course, being able to determine uh, not only when to eat, what we eat, what we wear, uh, and at work, being able to have a sense of autonomy and agency in determining how we go about our tasks or set about meeting our responsibilities. Clinical studies by Jonathan Haidt and others, uh, or at least referred to in the work by Haidt, um, there's many baseline happiness studies where they would go through buildings in downtown New York and interview everybody that was present. And they found that the people who were the happiest in their workplace or in uh, in their livelihoods were the ones who had the greatest amount of control over when they could do tasks and how they would go about them interestingly enough what this meant is that very often plumbers and janitors were at the very highest of people that were happy along with people who actually ran small businesses or businesses because they could determine how to go about their tasks, when they would work, when they would take a break, and so forth. And depending upon how little control people had in approaching their tasks, their happiness, their sense of well-being would diminish while their uh, saline cortisol levels would go up. Uh, Cortisol is, of course, the stress uh, hormone in the body. This is why, um, believing that we have A sense of control or power to choose, make decisions in our life, makes life more bearable. It makes us feel less uh, vulnerable. And many uh, clinical psychologists have noted, including all the way back to the Buddha, that people like to establish routines and rituals in their life to create the feeling of control. If we do things on sometimes on a day-by-day basis, the things that we have ingrained in our life as ritual, even though there's really very little choice there, it still presents the feeling of control and that makes us feel less vulnerable. Of course, um, many studies have shown that people who due to uh, living in areas with little economic opportunity or mired in addiction due to childhood abuse. Uh, Poverty is associated with uh, diminished control and choices one can make. And because of that, it's associated with depression. It's not the lack of money. It's actually the lack of choices and the lack of agency in one's life that creates the depression associated with um, poverty, lack of funds. Perceived control has been shown to um, build up what's called the window of tolerance, which is the the degree that we can maintain homeostasis in our nervous system, to even depend, even though there's setbacks in life and disappointing life, to the degree that we feel that we can make choices that we're not hemmed in, that we still our decisions and our actions still can matter and the outcome plays an enormous role in developing what's called resilience, the ability to bounce back from obstacles and so forth. Now this brings me to, in fact, uh, one clinical study showed that people who are going to be given slight electric shocks actually can tolerate more pain if they think there's something that they can do to stop the shocks like some you know they generally put in front of them like a kind of uh quiz or something while they're receiving the shocks and if they believe there's a way they can solve and make the shocks go away even though there isn't they experience the pain of the shocks less severely than those who don't have anything in front of them and believe there's no way that they can solve or end the shocks, even though they're the same Mm -hmm. amount. Now this brings me to the topic of tonight's talk, which is learned helplessness. And I'm gonna explain what it is and then I'm gonna explain actually why actually they found that it's not really true. (laughs) So I'm I'm gonna introduce learned helplessness. Um, The idea of learned helplessness is that um, If we experience a series of setbacks or failures or disappointments in our life, after a while, we give up trying. And then a sense of helplessness sets in. And whenever there's helplessness in life, despondency, despair, depression is sure to follow. And this research that you would think this is pretty obvious, but actually it took a a great deal of clinical research to develop uh, the concept of learned helplessness. It was first observed in the lab by a a famous psychologist named Martin Seligman, who later on became the head of the American Psychiatric Association, the founder of positive psychology, and just very, very important figure in 20th century uh, psychological clinical theory. And what he did I'm going to describe the experiments, and in so doing, I want you to understand that none of this was my idea, I would not do this, but uh, I'm just going to describe it anyway. So in 1965 through 1967, Seligman and other uh, graduate clinical researchers had a bunch of dogs. And they first strapped the dogs into these harnesses and they gave them these very mild electric shocks, not in any way damaging in any physiological way, but unpleasant. And in front of half the dogs, there was a lever. If they pushed the lever, the shocks would stop. The other half of the dogs, even if they pushed the lever, nothing would stop. They'd still get the shocks. Now, it's important to bear that in mind because then they took these dogs later on and they put them in a room, and in half the room, the floor would have irregular shocks that, again, were unpleasant, not physiologically damaging, but unpleasant. And the only thing the dogs would need to do would be to move to the other side of the room where the floor wasn't wired up to give shocks. Now, the dogs that in the original experiment could push a lever and the shocks would stop were the ones that actually experimented and went to the other side of the room and ended the unpleasant experiences but and this is the heartbreaking part the dogs that previously were in tests where there was nothing they could do to avoid being shocked would just lie down and take it they wouldn't even try across the room into the to the side they gave up and that's where the first observations of what's called learned helplessness was found um, they did the same experiments with rats and the rats that were put in the situation where there was no way to end their shocks were three times more likely to develop tumors than the ones that were, could have a sense of control because what happened is having no control raised their cortisol levels and when your cortisol levels raise your immune system stops to function and you become subject to cancers and tumors etc. So there was a direct correlation not just between uh, depression, stress, but also physiological This observation was actually in place long before Seligman's experiments because for many decades before, uh, people noticed the famous uh, elephant effect where baby elephants were trained to not escape. They would uh, chain an ankle around one of their hoofs. I don't know what they're called, hoofs legs, feed something, elephant legs and they would, uh, they would, uh, trunks, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. (laughs) Feet. And they would, the chain would be in a small pole that would be driven into the ground. Now, of course, by the time the elephants were fully grown to over nine, eight, nine feet in height, weighed hundreds upon hundreds of pounds, the elephants could easily pull the pole out, but they had given up trying. So even the smallest pole would keep the elephants from escaping because they wouldn't try to test the strength of the pole that was in the ground. Now, it's important to understand that these exact same behaviors have been shown in us human beings. If children early on in life experience a series of struggles and math tests, very quickly they give up. And anytime they face any issue in math that requires even the most mundane addition or subtracting skills will essentially freeze or become stressed out, frustrated, give up. I have actually had, and I am no math person in my life, but I've had many dinners with people. If their phone runs out of juice, they cannot for the life of them figure out how much tip to give because <laughs> figuring out 20% is just not possible for them. And that's a result of learned helplessness. Um, learned helplessness happens quite frequently in social anxiety. Uh, any child who throughout a period of life feels ostracized from a social community for instance they're new in a school they don't feel welcome and they feel like they are an outcast very often these same people grow up to believe that they are unlikable that all social groups will reject them and in any social situation where they feel on the spot they will freeze Now, the key thing to know about learned helplessness in life, which leads to avoidance coping, things we avoid, and depression, is that it's not an idea like, I can't do this. It's not a conscious belief. It's actually an emotional belief. We're not even aware, like dogs are not aware, oh, I've given up, I'm not even going to try to cross the rooms what happens or the elephant doesn't have this thought, well, I I should just give up pulling the pole out of the ground because there's no way to do it. It's simply whenever the possibility or even the idea of embracing or moving towards it causes so much physiological stress that people simply avoid anything that is associated with a string of failures. So it's not a conscious issue that we carry around in our mind oh, I'm bad at this, that we can talk our way out of. It's an emotional belief. And emotional beliefs, which are right hemispheric, stored in the orbital frontal, are activate physiological stress. So whenever we approach something where in the past we've struggled, it creates somatic markers of tension, our cortisol levels rise, our breath starts to rise, the hair in the back of the neck, hypervigilance set in, and we will do anything but Try to approach that task. It's an unconscious belief that will fail. So, what are the. Um, uh, now, I should note that subsequently to this research, a lot of neuroscience showed that everybody, the neuroscientists argue that everybody is born believing they suck at everything. And that it's mastery that's learned, that we don't learn that we're, we're we are incompetent in anything, that we actually assume that we're bad at everything and that it's actually mastery or competency is something we have to learn through trial and error. So there is a debate now between whether it's learned hopelessness or learned helpfulness. I am not in the position of answering that, but for the sake of just moving forward in this talk, we'll just refer to this tendency of giving up trying because there's an unconscious emotional belief that we will not succeed no matter what we do, which then creates a sense of powerlessness, lack of agency, which then turns into despair and avoidance coping, where we avoid anything that has to do with that arena and life many people it could be singing aloud it could be picking up an instrument it could be doing something my mother had learned helplessness with anything physical if it was anything intellectual she would go for it it didn't matter what but if it had anything to do with movement balance physiological capability she would just start to panic Start to the the repetitive thoughts spurred by the right amygdala i'm not going to be able to do it I'm not going to be able to do it with set in and so forth so anything in life can turn due to a series of setbacks can lead to learned helplessness. so what are the causes that make people more likely to have uh, learned helplessness as part of their um, challenges in life. Well, one theory is that in childhood, according to Heinz Coet, a great American psychologist, if we don't have parents that model how to succeed in adversity, how to persevere, then trying to persevere in the face of mounting disappointments or a series of frustrating events, the child will not feel permitted at first to even try, will believe by exposure to the parents that give up, that there's no way that they can succeed. So that's one theory that's based on attachment and based on early modeling, that the the less our parents modeled perseverance, the less we will be able to develop resilience as adults. Um, Another is the theory of explanatory, um, what is it called, explanatory styles, yes. so, people who oh, there was a study of of people in college, and the ones who uh, developed learned helplessness after failing tests or midterms were the ones that blamed themselves after a setback. Students who didn't develop learned helplessness would invariably blame conditions, blame like I didn't get enough sleep or blame other factors. The professor sucked. They were (laughs) unclear. Uh, You know, I didn't eat well enough. I didn't study enough, whatever. But they would not blame themselves. They would not turn it into a story of I'm not good at this. I won't be good at this. I'm not you know, I will never be capable. They wouldn't turn it into a globalizing belief. And I I find this explanation to be very uh, It makes a lot of sense, of course, that people who are prone to explain setbacks in terms of there's something in me that's just not good at math or just not good at tests or just not good at relationships or is not good at uh, playing music or not good at whatever. That to me could very obviously lead to learned helplessness as a predilection. What are the ways that if we do have learned helplessness, anything, any activity that we avoid, that feels, uh, that we feel incapable of approaching, what are some of the tools that do help? Well, outside of the spiritual platform, which I, I tend to discuss, cognitive behavioral therapy has been proven very effective. What it does is it tends to challenge people's attributions of failure in their life. It challenges their explanatory styles, and it forces people to explain setbacks, roadblocks, stumbles, and disappointments in their life from different perspectives. And simply doing that can help alleviate the learned helplessness that develops. Um, Number two, uh support groups connecting with other people who struggle with the same challenges is notoriously effective as a way to actually experiencing very slowly the model of people getting better who have the same exact challenges in our life nothing is less useful than when we have a struggle in our life very often sharing about it with people who don't have any issue in that area. Because even if they're empathetic and kind and they want to be helpful, something in their nonverbal cues that they send us, their facial expression, and our right hemisphere is the one that really matters here, your right hemisphere is, doesn't give a shit what people say, it actually looks at their facial expressions as you reveal something. And if you sense that they don't understand your struggles, you will not only not feel any better, you'll feel even worse about that. Uh, One really memorable event in my life was at one point I was really struggling with panic attacks while um, giving talks. An unfortunate uh, incident had created this fear of doing what I'm doing right now. There was this period where it was very it produced a lot of anxieties and I went to another Buddhist teacher who I had every expectation that they would be empathetic and would be kind say, oh yeah, of course I get it. And when I said, yeah, right now I'm having panic attacks while speaking, the person said, oh, that's horrible. But I could see in their face that they didn't have a fucking clue what it was like to have a panic attack before speaking in front of people. And I felt even more defective because I was sharing with someone who had not experienced that as a challenge. In my, uh, lots of clinical research shows that people who have drinking, uh, who are alcoholics, get better not when they are in support groups of non-alcoholics, but when they're in support groups of other alcoholics. People who have struggles with overeating or gambling or whatever get better when they're connected with people who are facing the same challenges. Because when they reveal their struggles, the other people around them do not emit nonverbal cues that we have no control over that transmit the idea, I don't get what the fuck you're talking about. That's not an issue for me. Now, in terms of... Dharma or Buddhist uh, approaches to learned helplessness. Um, a very big, important concept in Buddhism is that is the idea of Nikama or renunciation, which is the idea that in market capitalist-based societies, control is associated with purchasing power, the ability to buy the ability to accumulate and also the ability to amass success in the career. The problem with this is that all of the signatories or the the ways that we are funneled to seek a sense of mastery and control in our life are extremely conditional. Nobody really has control over how much money they have in the end or how much Uh, success they'll have. There's very little control. There's so many external factors that can at times lead to deficits of uh, excess capital or can lead to struggles in one's career. They're very prone to external factors outside of our control. In the Dharma, the Buddha noted that one gets control very often by renunciation or letting go of the addictions in our life that have caused us suffering. So it's control not by trying to achieve or acquire or accumulate, but rather than to put aside behaviors, routines, habits, and any form of addiction that has caused us um, suffering. In my own life, uh, 25 years ago when I got sober, um, thankfully it stuck, It created by far and away the greatest feeling of liberation, the greatest sense of control and agency, the greatest sense of mastery in my life. Along with becoming uh, an empowered Buddhist teacher, that single act of letting go of something that was causing me suffering was remains in my life as one of the greatest examples and empowering experiences that tell me I can do anything. And no amount of capitalist based of uh, the only way I can show myself that I can attain mastery or solve or overcome adversity that's based on accumulation or uh, achievement can really do that because we're always subject to setbacks in those arenas. No one but myself can take away my sobriety but anybody can take away your career if, if the wrong thing happens. So it's far better to base your, um, the approaches for developing a sense of mastery in something that is is actually under control. So that's one key teaching. Another key teaching in the Dharma happens when the Buddha speaks to his six-year-old son, Rahula, and he gives him a lesson that uh, really is the fundamental lesson uh, that remains to this day that monks give to people who are entering the spiritual path. The Buddha says to his son, if you do something wrong, if you take an action that causes suffering, if you make a mistake, if you have a setback in life, don't blame yourself. Just acknowledge that that action was unskillful but in no way attributes the action to any core self or identity because actually the Buddha later on in other suttas says there is no core inherent identity to blame anything on anyway. We are constantly in flux. Our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts, our inclinations, all of them over time are subtly shifting and there's no solid, concretized, static, immobile self anyway. But in this teaching, the Buddha says to um, his son, after an action, reflect on it. This action I've, uh, that just occurred, did it lead to harm to myself or others or both? Was it an unskillful choice? If you suspect it was, simply find someone who's wise and acknowledge it and then try not to do it again in the future. That's it. Damn, I wish I got that when I was a kid. If, however, after reflection, you know that the action did not cause harm to yourself or others, that it was a skillful choice, then rejoice in it. Feel good about it. So there's an an absolute refusal to attribute struggles in life to any core sense of shame or self Or anything about me is incapable. Um, And so, for much of the Buddhist path, uh, there's a lot of practices that challenge this idea that there's anything inherent about us that could be flawed, that could be broken. That the only thing that happens is that through a series of setbacks in life. We emotionally believe that we can't do something, but it's not inherent to who we are. There is no core deficit in us whatsoever. Simply an unconscious belief that if we try certain endeavors, we won't succeed. But it's not based on anything real. Lastly, a core practice that's used to develop what's called sada or confidence is Santinusati, sati, which is visualizing times and experiences of peace even during challenges that generally cause us struggles or challenges or setbacks. I'm going to try to clarify this. Most people, when they try to address areas in life where they really struggle, where they have panic attacks, where they practice avoidance coping if they do any visualizations what they do is they try to visualize themselves doing it and succeeding and paradoxically that doesn't work because the idea oh i'm doing this activity and i'm doing it really well what they're not aware of it's causing them physiological stress and so it doesn't actually alleviate anything they still go into the activity with this their stomach tighten, their breath becomes short, their awareness jumps about, they become hypervigilant and they start having obsessive thoughts. If you want to use visualization practice to approach something in your life where you've previously struggled or that causes unease or stress, what you do is you visualize yourself doing it and then pay attention to your body and relax it and keep on relaxing it, relax your breath, soften your belly, visualize yourself doing the activity in a relaxed way. Don't visualize yourself doing it and succeeding, just visualize yourself doing it without fear. That's a huge difference because in, there's a, in many psychological modalities, this exercise has proven very effective where there's a, a visualization technique in some therapeutic modalities where you visualize yourself in a situation that causes panic and you visualize yourself now in a movie theater and you're watching yourself on a movie screen doing that activity but you remind yourself I'm just in a movie theater and you keep on relaxing your body and your breath and over time when people go into that activity that they used to fail or become self-conscious or expect uh, a kind of setback if their body relaxes, then that's the way the emotional belief of learned helplessness communicates with us. If you relax your body, then you will rel- essentially address the core domain of learned helplessness. Simply by learning to relax, it's easier to approach and there's less avoidance or stress. So. That's tonight's talk. I hope something in there was interesting. If not, I will give another talk next week and hopefully it will be better. So what we're gonna do now is a practice where we actually put in to our meditation guided, we're gonna first relax and self-soothe, address our autonomic nervous system, achieve homeostasis, and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna use Visualizations to uh, address some area in our life where we feel a lack of competency, and we're going to practice this technique. So, closing the eyes, and of course, I'm just loosen my belt. Anything that feels tight, loosen it. Get really comfortable just allow yourself to sway back and forth, coming back like a top and just allow your body and its own to come to a complete standstill. So there's no, don't allow your left brain to force your way into a position to think your way into, just allow your body to find what feels comfortable to it. And then the only effort we put in as usual is just take your chin and lift it, maybe an inch so that you're counteracting that inclination that we very often have to allow our heads to slouch in front of the chest. Just that's that little tiny little bit of effort. <clears throat> the rest is just relaxing. And we're going to do a series of breaths where we're going to address key areas of the vagal nerve cluster, which in turn can restore you to what's known as parasympathetic or relaxed rest and digest. Take a nice full in breath through the nose and squinch the muscles of your face while you hold the breath, clench the jaw, furrow the brow, pinch the nose, ugly little face and then breathe out slowly through the mouth and relax, release the jaw, smooth out your forehead, allow everything just to soften, And send a request to your eyes, send an email to your eyes, and tell your eyes just to relax. Not even email, text message. Relax, settle in your eye sockets. Don't move about. This is your time to take a break. You've spent the entire day looking around the world, helping me. (coughs) Staying vigilant, looking for threats, and this is an opportunity you have right now to take a break. When your eyes settle, when the optic nerves settle, then what happens is the fusiform gyrus and other key areas of the frontal lobe begin to settle as well, and it becomes easier to achieve the degree of peace and now for our second complete in-breath lift those shoulders up like you're trying to do something really weird like reach above your heads with them and then begin to rotate your shoulders back and as you breathe out drop your arms so that they're two held like lifeless limbs hanging from the shoulders, which are back, so you've opened up your chest, and the vagal break, which slows down your breath, and is absolutely key in restoring rest and digest, broaden and build states if you're Breath slows down, your inhalations are long, your blood pressure drops, cortisol diminishes. Having a broad, open chest tells the insula and the right amygdala that we're not under any threat, we don't need to protect ourselves. And then for the third breath, just extending, bloating out the belly as you breathe in, just feeling a big round bloated belly. You hope nobody can see and nobody can because everybody's got their eyes closed. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. Nice. So we're going to use the breath for a while to relax both the mind and the body. It's important to, at the beginning of meditation, to try to set the intention of having nothing to do, nowhere to go, no responsibilities or obligations for the next 20 minutes. It's like again i like to use the analogy it's the first day of your vacation you're at this beautiful place where you can actually come to a complete stop in your life you don't need to all of the unresolved issues back home are not here you can put down your bags and your mind which for so many of us, just races ahead of us, always trying to get someplace in the future, achieve something. Instead, none of that's attractive to us. The only thing that we really want to do, our intention right now, is just to bring the mind to a complete stop. Nowhere to go nothing to plan nothing to do no one to take care of just allowing the mind to fully connect with the body not race ahead of it so for the next quiet part start with the very front of your forehead. and Imagine you could breathe into that area. And then as you begin to slowly exhale, release all the muscles beneath the eyes, the jaw, the throat, the shoulders even more, the back or the chest, the belly. Then breathe in again with the third eye, as they sometimes call it. And then as you breathe out, relax. So the outbreath feels like a warm shower, releasing everything beneath. And then breathe into other areas of your body. And as you breathe in, just bring awareness to that area, soften any discomfort. And then as you breathe out, imagine the release of the out-breath, relaxing all the areas adjacent to where you've breathed in. If you can, try to make your out-breaths at least as long as the end, if not significantly longer, so you're not pushing out air, you're just slowly releasing air trying to make the breath as soft, relaxing, soothing as you can. And if your mind wanders, what's most important is not to attribute wandering to any failure, to any sense that you're doing it wrong. When your mind wanders, gets caught up in a thought, or a worry, or a plan, it's just an opportunity to find a new way back home, home to your body, home to the present. No, mm-hmm. So at this point, just allow the mind to return to just a more spacious, open awareness. Let's take a moment to just scan the somatic markers in the front of our body just to see what state we're in. Do your eyes feel somewhat settled or are they jumpy, bouncing about behind the closed eyelids? Do Is your jaw clenched or relaxed? Are your shoulders hanging in a released fashion, or do they still feel slightly clenched? Are the abdominal muscles tight or relaxed? Is your mind settled or is it scattered? Filled with thoughts or does it feel heavy and sleepy? These and other factors can indicate which of the three settings your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system is in. What we're looking for in this exercise is to have a relaxed breath where the out breath is at least as long as the in breath, where the stomach muscles are released, where the shoulders aren't clenched and where the forehead is in furrow, physiological markers of ease. So what I'd now like you to do is visualize some endeavor in your life, some arena, some something that you avoid. It can be... Something relational like going on a date, speaking in public, asking for your needs in your workplace or with a roommate. Something that we avoid like certain social events or perhaps it could be something creative we avoid. Or it could be speaking up for ourselves in power dynamics or asking for our needs to be met in relationships. It could be any realm of human endeavors from trying to develop new skills, self-care, Physical movement. Just see if you can isolate one area where you really struggle that you either avoid or it feels really difficult to proceed. The sure signs of an unconscious emotional belief that this area, that this activity is doomed to failure. And now what we're going to do is very simple. We're going to visualize ourselves in as much detail as we can. Visualize yourself in that activity, in that situation. And why you do it, Why you hold that image in your mind, Focus at least half of your awareness on keeping your breath really long, your chest very open, your eyes relaxed, the belly soft and pliant. We're disassociating this activity with stress, we're associating it with calmness and confidence. That's all we're doing, holding the image of ourselves in the situation where we struggle and physically keeping our bodies relaxed, our breath long, our minds settled. All right, so just allow the image of whatever activity you chose to dissipate slowly fade out of awareness and then when you hear the sound of the bowl just slowly open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you first and try to bring any ease and comfort physiologically that you've cultivated. In your meditation, try to bring it with you into the rest of your evening. Sustained mindfulness is not about meditating for extended periods, about just being aware of the state of your body, especially whether your stomach is relaxed, your chest open, your throat soft, your forehead released, your eyes relaxed your breath long and smooth the longer or the more you bring interoception or internal awareness with you the more you can begin to reduce chronic stress or any stress that lingers